Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy Memorial Day weekend. That means we have a holiday clips episode for you. It features Eamon Ore Hiron. Ore Hiron is one of 20 artists that the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and the African American Museum in Philadelphia asked to respond to this question. Is the sun rising or setting on the experiment of American democracy? The artist's answers are featured in Rising Sun Artists in an Uncertain America, which is on view through October 8th. Ore Hiron's work is in the PAFA section of the exhibition. Ore Hiron's work joins histories, geographies, and uses abstraction as a means by which to explore the layered past and present of the Americas. He's been featured in solo shows and two-person shows at the MCA Denver just last year, Lax Art and the 18th Street Art Center in Los Angeles, and at PAFA. This episode was taped in January 2022, when the Anderson Collection at Stanford University presented Eamon Oré-Hiron, Non Plus Ultra. Eamon Oré-Hiron, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago's Atrium Project invites artists to respond to the museum's entrance with the new large-scale work. In the newest Atrium Project, Lotus Lori Kang continues her exploration of entropy and continual becoming, exploring the relationship between time, personal history, and cultural knowledge. Plan your trip to visit the MCA and see Kang's new Atrium Project at mca.org. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South L.A., Downtown L.A., and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. On view now at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University, Spirit in the Land, a contemporary art exhibition that examines today's urgent ecological concerns from a cultural perspective. Spirit in the Land demonstrates how intricately our identities and natural environments are intertwined. Through their artwork, 30 artists show us how rooted in the earth our most cherished cultural traditions are, how our relationship to land and water shapes us as individuals and communities. The works reflect the restorative potential of our connection to nature and exemplify how essential both biodiversity and cultural diversity are to our survival. Artists in the exhibition include Wangeshi Mutu, Radcliffe Bailey, Hugh Locke, Stacey Lynn Waddell, and Sheldon Scott. On view through July 9th. 
Learn more at nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Eamon Ore Hiron, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with a work you made in 2010. Like, I don't think there's like any one way of establishing a beginning point in your work because you've worked in so many different media. But for the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> let's start with a 2010 work called Untitled Oho. It's a screen print on canvas. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Features a central portraiture bust-like form centered on the horizontal canvas and two oval and roundish forms on either side of the semi-head. And straight-ish-ish lines emanate from the center of the head. And it's it seems to me like a work that introduces, or at least is very early, in a lot of things that you've spent the last 12 years exploring. So what is this 2010 picture about and what informed it? This work was done at a time that I had been cutting record sleeves. So if you look at the piece, you'll notice, you know, like a mouth in the lower right corner. You'll see kind of an eye. There's all these different little elements almost looking like collaged. And what I was doing is taking records and cutting into them with an X-Acto knife and then splitting them open. So the centerpiece would be the album's spine, basically. And so this one was based on a Grace Jones album. And then using that in kind of like a polka approach, kind of using little bits of it to kind of piece together a different image. This face ends up kind of appearing with this center emanating rays. And a lot of these come out of when I was doing a ton of DJing. So I had a lot of albums, a lot of throwaway albums or albums that didn't make the cut, I guess. No pun intended, but so, and I would spray paint and, and use lots of different mediums. I don't think I knew a lot about like the materiality of paint in terms of like what can go on top of what, but that's what this series comes out of. One of the paintings that came out of the series was later used as an album cover for a reissue of a French early kind of noise band called In Eternum Alum, I believe, A-L-U-M. And that is of the full Grace Jones kind of cut, remashed, mashed up image. And actually a really wonderful artist here in LA, Gary Garay, he helped me do these large scale silk screens because these are pretty big. These are probably, I think about like, maybe this one's like four feet tall by like six feet wide, something like that. I was just going to say they have a force field that seems to reach out to the viewer from the, from the wall. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of the sides were painted to give a little bit of a glow. And what was interesting about this show, I was also playing with text at the time. And so there are pieces from this time period in the same exhibition at Steve Turner's when he was down on Wilshire that are with spray paint and text and kind of freeform cutout text that were referencing Celtic origin myths, Mayan origin myths, and Aztec origin myths. So a lot of these works, it was kind of a way to kind of weave together my interest in music and the, and the visual language of music as well. And in that, you know, you, you get lyric, you get storytelling and, and, and all of that. And if you're familiar with my work, 
prior to this, like of late 90s and early 2000s, it was very different, you know. And so in some ways, I think these works in a lot of ways was like an exercise in loosening up, breaking away from a lot of the kind of formality or formal structures that I had kind of developed for myself. Yeah, this this work is four years after you finished your MFA at UCLA. And at UCLA, you know, I think I was kind of really questioning my role as an artist and and as a painter. I think I was coming to the end of a certain kind of narrative that I was exploring in my work. And at that time, I made good friends with Brenna Youngblood, who is a, an incredible collage artist. She probably inspired me quite a bit with this work. And Joshua Astor, another amazing painter, and a series of other people and people that were not associated with UCLA either, that we ended up becoming a band called OHO. So that's kind of like, I think my experience at UCLA was branching out and, and exploring these ideas of like performance. And, you know, I, I kind of viewed that time period as a time to germinate other ideas and ways of expressing myself. And a bunch of those ways are, are absolutely in this picture, the, the circles that will become important soon thereafter and that we'll be talking about in a moment, these dominant, strong, muscular vertical lines. And then also in this, in this picture are these intensities of color, some of which suffuse uh, an entire side of the canvas, some of which are contained in a single line, something else that will become prominent in your work later. I want to skip forward to 2012 because before you would pare down to your, your, your imagery to these lines and circles, you, your work would get rather more Baroque. So in 2012, you did a show at LA's 18th Street Art Center that featured painting and sculpture and music and references to music within sculpture and references to sculpture within music. I mean, it was a show that had everything under the sun. And as I... <laughs> prepared to talk with you and was reviewing the, the, the stuff that was in the 18th Street Art Center show, I realized the better way to go about it was to ask about it this way. So my first question was a question about the formal stuff going on in a, in a particular picture. But as we get into, into after 2010, it seems to me you're finding the best way or ways to address Peru and your family history in your work. Is there something to that? Is there something in the 2010s that got you thinking about Peru and your family? I know that like the genesis of that exhibition, kind of obsessed with this idea of like the motorcycle diaries, Che Guevara. And I was into this idea of like this eternal space that to me Peru represents sometimes as kind of an endless type of space that in one point lives in my memory. And, and I'm sure this is like the same for a lot of children of immigrants or people from other places. You have these places that are kind of frozen in your, your memory and kind of idealized on certain levels, but then also kind of even your own kind of exotification of your own memories, like the complete definition of nostalgia. But I was also into thinking of like those original motorcycle diaries are Che Guevara, like being exposed to the harsh realities of like rural life in Latin America. And it was kind of strange because I had come across this blog of like, I was like, hmm, I'm really curious. What are people's, like, if I were to like look at what a motorcycle diary is of 
2010, like, are there people out there on motorcycles? What are they doing in Peru? What, you know, what, what is their view of Peru? And sure enough, there's like all these interesting motorcycle diaries, basically blog posts of people riding their motorcycles through South America. And I was really curious about the imagery that they were coming across and their impressions. So there were some really amazing photos of these mining towns near where my dad is from called Morococha. And not just Morococha, there's a lot of different mining towns at the high altitude parts of Chile and Bolivia and stuff like that. And what I really loved about these images that I kept finding was they would always kind of be posed with their motorcycle in the middle of a plaza. And in the plaza, they had these like, you know, statues dedicated to the miners and to the workers. And they were really amazing. You know, they were very much like probably produced in the 80s, maybe some in the 90s. So they were this like hybrid blend of like figurative forms, you know, two hands coming out of the ground with chains being broken. But then they were always placed on these like ultra modernist kind of plinths. Or they'd have some really interesting kind of modernist forms around them. And so I kind of was thinking about like that, that's kind of, I know it's really very roundabout and long winded, but that's kind of the travel that I took in arriving for, to the work for that exhibition. So that's why I think there's so much in that show. There's so many different directions going on in that show. And quite honestly, I also kind of really thought of that show as an incubator, you know, because it, it was done in tandem with a residency at the 18th street center. So the work that came out of that was the show was called man in the plaza and open tuning was part of the show as well, which is like when you strum a guitar and you have it tuned to a single chord. So I was kind of interested in open tuning of specifically of Peru of like where my dad is from. There's a very specific type of music from his region and music that I had been taught when I was young to play on the guitar. And these ideas of memory and these ideas of like, what are these like kind of images out there in the world of that place to type in Morococha in, in Google and see what comes up and to kind of do this traverse. If I can't travel there right now, let me see what other people are seeing and, and what are, what are the images that are coming up on this search? So there's a number of paintings that are dedicated to those works, which I don't know if they're even online, but like, you know, a guy on a motorcycle in front of these two arms with chains being broken and, and a number of other ones with miners on these different platforms kind of, you know, doing different elements of their daily work. Yeah, it's this period when you are throwing 83 things up against a wall and they're they're all ending up in paintings. And and the, the the point I'm being very slow to getting to make is that there is an a Polkian, a Sigmar Polkian baroqueness and layering within these pictures. And yet somehow within about two years or a year, I guess a year after that, you have your first show in New York City, and all of that busyness and depth and layering. And size, really, and, and, and just enormity of canvas. All of it's gone. I mean, just like snap, snap your fingers and it's gone. So what happened? Well, so the piece in the center, the centerpiece of that exhibition at 18th Street was the man in the plaza. And it was, I guess, 
you could describe it kind of like, you know, a shade divider that would kind of stand at a zigzag. I don't know what you call those. I guess just like a space divider. So the centerpiece was a sculpture that was a divider that kind of zigzagged. And at the end, it turned into the face of a man and it had a cigar, which was actually a copper pipe. And the surface of the sculpture was all corkboard. And so I was thinking about, speaking of that layering, I was thinking, okay, I want to create a sculpture. There were a number of sculptural pieces in that exhibition, one of which went to the Nikhil Pouchain show that you're mentioning, the guitar. So in that piece, there was corkboard that I would then attach paintings to, to try to tell this kind of story about, it was inspired by one of these towns, one of these works in the middle of the town that I had been mentioning about before. And it was an art show in this town in the, it, that my father's from that where it was just showcased local painting, you know, and it was, it was really interesting. It was like, looked like a piece that could be in any gallery or museum it had just really interesting images because it's folk art. It was people from around that region showing their painting and I was really curious by this like way to display painting in in a plaza and so for me like this sculpture contained a number of paintings that then ended up kind of becoming the genesis of the works that went on to Nikhil Bouchain's and then exploring that further has really resulted in the abstract language that I speak now in my painting. Yeah, there's one there's one particular painting on that corkboard that is recognizable as where you would go. The other is less so. <laughs> there is a hand, an irregular a hand on a teardrop shaped chemistry lab beaker shaped thing coming out of what might be the eye of the guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, we'll I, have an I, image some, on manpodcast.com. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, uh, oh, in a copper, I actually like engraved a copper plate, just like the same kind of plates that they use for doing etchings and stuff like that. And and on it, I had written a poem. So, the, so <laughs> this is very complicated, but... This whole kind of idea of like the plaza, a man in the plaza, a man in the plaza sits and plays a guitar, you know, and then thinking about the guitar as this like abstract form that is so well represented in early modernist art. And then later digging deeper into what the guitar is, you know, and its first mass production was like very much, it was the first instrument kind of mass produced for people of lower means and how that ended up changing the music that we all know. And in Spain, even like flamenco music became kind of the identity of Spain because the guitar, the guitar was spread all throughout the country. And then images of like Arlo Guthrie with, you know, this machine kills fascists and just ruminating on all of this and thinking about this one specific open tuning that was I don't know if the word endemic is the right word, but is very, very, very much specifically associated with this region that my father's from, this type of guitar that I had been playing. I was interested in, kind of in these ideas of like, I guess, identity too, you know, like how identity is potentially formed by the earth, not even by us, our specific location. 
You know, why does the blues come from Mississippi? Why didn't it come from Vermont? These type of ideas, tossing them around. And I think in terms of the painting, like, I think the painting that you're referring to is like a head that's on the corkboard. Yeah, it's, it's a really small little painting, maybe like 10 or 12 or 14 inches square. Yeah, and so that that piece was really just like I I wanted to play with this following all of the, this exploration and like improvisation as well. And I believe that painting was, you know, a lot of those paintings were made at my table in my kitchen using plates, cups, different things to kind of create the forms. You mean the circles? The circles are coming right out of utensils and such? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so I think like a lot of that ends up still translating some of that idea of layering that happens in the earlier works that you're referring to, that kind of playing with layering and, and what forms start to take shape. It still exists. It's just in a, in a much more stripped down, bold kind of form. By 2013, you're trusting the shapes and the colors and letting them do the work. Whereas for the previous five years, you'd been feeling the need to do all of it at once. Do you have any sense or memory of what got you to trust simplicity? It's kind of like when you find the place you belong, there's something about a familiarity with it. And I think what I do remember feeling very at home with the simplicity of a pencil color a, a canvas or linen you know and you could almost just I could put it in a backpack and you could send me anywhere in the world and I would still that was me that was my identity and that felt really liberating in some ways instead of being tethered to like a ton of things that I need and so I think that I do definitely remember feeling very liberated by that and I think in some ways like that 18th street exhibition was like a really good way of, like you said, throwing everything at the wall. It was just this kind of, you need these kind of moments, I think, in order to really like agitate what your concepts are doing. Sometimes the entropy of the, your concepts need to be like pushed up again and thrown all over the place and follow each direction. And I think that that was also like an impulse that I had from being an improvisational musician. It also feels like this is either the moment you discover Latin American geometric abstraction from mid-century or the moment that you maybe had, didn't find it but fell in love with it. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, it, it really wasn't even like the great masters of Latin American you know, geometric abstraction. It was these strange sculptures in the middle of these towns that were probably done after the agrarian reform that was like this big kind of the central government like in you know in an effort to modernize and to honor the workers you know we will bring in this like modern clean cool sculpture to your town we will honor you by putting you on top of it so it wasn't even like so much of a an exposure to latin american geometric abstraction through scholarship in Argentinian or Venezuelan painting or anything. It was part of that <laughs> motorcycle diaries that I mentioned before, my Google motorcycle diaries. It was this kind of really, like I was very interested in, because in Latin America, I do feel like there there is such a strong association with utopian, it definitely during the agrarian reform, especially like in the 60s, you know, this effort to be like, 
attaching it to a social language, but at the same time kind of pushing things from the past out away and kind of trying to move things into this future, you know, which is, I think, a different, a different take, you know. And so for me, it was that's that that I think I think you're totally right. I think that's like when I was definitely like something clicked in that. And I was very interested in that idea. So I want to spend a moment on this pared down geometric language that emerges in your work in 2013 and that you have continued to expand and refine simultaneously ever since. I was interesting to hear you mention that one way you got started in developing it was using coffee cups and plates and such and, and, and using the circles and such that those forms offered. But another thing that's in the work starting in 2013 are these really straight lines, sometimes in triangles, sometimes in, in parallelograms, sometimes in whatever. Really strong lines, really pared down lines. And I think maybe at first you're not using tape or rulers to create them, but soon you would be. How did you define how you would leave marks on canvas, either with pencil or with paint, either in pencil or with that you would fill in with paint? Yeah, I mean, I, I never use tape, so it's even still... Even now? Even now, yeah. So it's just rulers now? It's all rulers. The circles are one of the main templates for most of my circles is the first album that I made back in 2008. It's the dub plate for my, my first DJ Lengua album. And yeah, no, I mean, I think in some ways is a little bit of like a challenge to myself to see how close the hand can replicate perfection on that level, but also how you can really fudge it a lot. If you zoom in on uh, one of these canvases on the linen, you know, the warp and the weft is like, each point is almost like a pixel and you can follow the thread of the weaving when, when you're making vertical lines or horizontal lines, you know, diagonal lines are the more difficult ones, just like a weaver would find diagonal ones without stair-stepping. And so in some ways, like it, it starts to relate to textile in that sense. You know, my, my approach to the painting does take on this, this kind of echo of what somebody that would be doing weaving at a loom would do. And so... Yeah, I, I've never done tape. I've been tempted to, and I've been asked about it. <laughs> but I I don't like how it comes out, honestly. Let, let me I jump like... in real quick. There is a color blue you use that is very close to the color of blue painter's tape. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's called ocean blue. <laughs> oh, and the other thing, too, is the paints are all... I don't mix my own. There's Very rarely do I mix my own paint. I mostly use paint out of the jar. I don't know if that fits in a little bit with the ethos of like, send me out with a pencil and canvas and, you know, wherever there's paint store, that will be where I could have a studio. But I don't mix my own paints. You know, it's been a long time since I do that. I mean, I do it for my classes. I should teach my students that. But And so there is something that that's probably the most mechanical <laughs> element to to my practice i feel like tape and those type of those edging techniques for my work 
make it they they take away the emotion i think which i like the emotion in my paintings you know that that i try to emanate in my work it's not abstraction for abstraction's sake no and there are moments where at first glance so not these 2013 works we're talking about but later on where from 50 feet away or 75 feet away the eye sees the distant painting and understands or assumes it to be symmetrical. But then as you get to the painting, as you physically get to the painting, you know, six inches from it, you realize that the viewer was deceived. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I, I mean, that is awesome because like it really puts painting back into the physical realm. We live in this virtual realm so much now that it's this thing that still needs to be experienced physically. There's one more painting in, in from 2013 I want to ask about. It is the most atypical painting that I know of that you made that year. It is kind of, uh, while the other paintings are lines and circles and parallelograms and triangles, this one is squiggly handsy paint with a yellow dot and a green dot. It is almost kind of the love child of Joe Miro and Eve Klein with a bobber when straight white line at the bottom of the painting. It is light years from anything else that you showed that year and indeed that you would show thereafter, like for years thereafter. So what the heck? <laughs> I think as, I, I mean, in some ways, I think it was maybe to to kind of disrupt the solidness of like to to actually show the energy of a, of a paint stroke. I think in some ways I always have there's some part of my personality that tries to subvert when I get really comfortable with something like to try to subvert that in some way. And I, and I'm sure that those work function on that level. I, I haven't continued those at all. Those were kind of just momentary, but um, I do have, I do have a piece here in the studio. That's probably from 2013 or 12. It's the largest one in that series. And it's about six feet tall by five feet wide. Yeah. The painting I was raising is 12 by 10 inches. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they're mostly are really small. And a lot of those, what I would do is kind of make a brush stroke on a piece of plastic sheeting. I was working stretching canvases here in L.A. at a stretcher bar company. And I would sit with all that, you know, extra plastic that we had from wrapping pieces. I would do some brush strokes and then I, as it was wet, press it against the linen. And so it was kind of this reverse or this like, you know, flipped brush stroke. Almost like a monotype. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then I would kind of use that to kind of inform like where I want to place the solid piece. The painting I'm talking about is called No Shackles. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. The one other painter that's within it that really jumped out at me is Sam Francis. It's the same blue. It's the same blue from his blue balls. So in 2013, you, you begin to settle into what will become your language. And in 2015, you've begun to complicate it, especially with a certain color or type of reflective gold paint. What is that gold paint and why did it come into the work? It's flash paint and it is iridescent. And, you know, I think like the beauty in being a painter and being a maker of objects is being exposed to material and letting the material kind of tell you certain things to inform you about, you know, what it is you might do with it. 
And at the time I was living in New York, I just moved out there. My son was about to be born and I came across the gold and I really loved this relationship it had with the linen. It kind of immediately pushed the linen back a few feet. It really does. It still does. It must be said. It still yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden, that depth that it gave on this ultra flat surface started to all of a sudden speak to ideas of architecture and internal architecture, too, like emotional architecture. And I, I've spoken about this previously when asked about this series, but at the time I had been I had lost my mother. She she actually died in Peru while while on vacation there. And I went down there to deal with all the things that you have to do when that happens. And my son had just been born. He was a month old. And so when I got back in the studio in New York, you know, it's just kinda like, uh, you know, sit down and just stare, you know, for the first time and like a month or so after having gone through all of that. And I think in a lot of ways, the gold spoke to me in this way that, you know, really demanded attention to a body of work. I think the more I explored gold and its metaphysical qualities or, or its relation to the way that we think about material and and history and all of our histories, like not just in Latin America, but you know, all over the world, gold has been a funerary material. So I, I think there's some kind of relationship to that experience in that specific time that when I came back into the studio, you know, it, I think it, it also centered me in this way to pursue a body of work that was going to be consistent like you know I had said how I had said earlier you know I, I I have a personality that as an artist that tends to subvert myself when I get comfortable and so it was actually like resisting that here is this material this has taught you that's going to teach you about what it means to dedicate yourself to a specific language and explore that language and see how much more language comes out of it, I guess. So that, to me, is kind of the, my relationship to the gold. We talked a little earlier about diagonal lines in your work and how they came to be important, especially as kind of testing yourself and playing against the weave and the weft of the linen on, on which you were painting. I think the first work of yours that explodes those lines into dominating forces is um, a mural you made for the Hammer Museum's 2018 Made in LA local ennial, local-ish ennial, which is diagonal lines going every which way. I would think that as a painter, the bigger you go with diagonal lines, the harder they are to work with, just because they're so dominant. Were you immediately comfortable with the way these diagonal lines were working in your work and thus it was easy to scale them up to room size as you did at the hammer? Or am I totally off on a wild goose chase? No, I, it, it wasn't easy. It was, I had to rely on some really basic geometry and things that I, like at, when you're working at that scale and you're standing in front of like a 25 foot wall, I think we had talked a little earlier or before the, the interview about kind of Euclidean space, you know, and so, you know, I think 
the diagonal lines in that form, I think I knew that they would give the viewer a sense of a deeper space. Like, so that atrium that you're walking into. At the hammer, the ground floor, just inside from Wilshire Boulevard, yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that I was the most preoccupied by was people feeling kind of dominated by this thing. And to me, what I was much more, my desire was to have people feel lifted up by it and feel, you know, a positive feeling, you know, and, and like as if it was opening the space more. And so I think those diagonal lines really kind of help do that. Just even on an optical, in an optical sense, they pull you in and they start to kind of, they activate your, your visual senses, you know? And I think I actually have like a really intense stigmatism. And so, you know, they, they're not perfect for me, you know, they, they kind of wobble a little bit. But no, I think, you know, in terms of those diagonal lines, and that specific piece, I think, like, it, it ended up working really well. I think the staircase also helped, like, the architecture of the staircase also helped kind of this this idea that you're moving up. Your body is physically moving up along with these diagonal lines. And your vantage point is changing as you're going up. I find that in a lot of your work, and this goes for paintings on linen, too, that it feels like it's been there forever. And that hammer biennial work, I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, oh, that's might as well have been there 40 years ago. It's just always been there. There's something about, maybe it's the hard edges of so many of your lines, I don't know. Maybe it's that you're playing with a mid-century geometric abstract language. It just feels like it's always been there. There's um, one move you did in that hammer 2018 piece, which by the way is called Angelitos Negros. As you come down the stairs from the hammer, you faced a wall where there was this kind of, not really a W, but a kind of W-like bending form, bending line. And that's a line that has recurred in your work a lot, going back really to the 2000 aughts. What does that line mean? Where is or where is it from? Why, why does it keep coming back? To me, it kind of represents lightning, kind of this like celestial phenomenon, something that you're looking up at. And the, and the piece... That specific motif or that wall, that, that image, is part of a series that I had started prior to the Infinite Regress. And I was thinking of ways of thinking about celestial bodies that were not seen by European eyes. So like the Southern Cross, which for a very long time was not viewable from the Northern Hemisphere. I think the tilt of the axis has shifted that a little bit, so it does start to appear on the southern horizon. I'm not totally sure about that. But I liked this idea of a sky that was not seen, was not colonized, I guess, in this sense. And when thinking about abstraction and, you know, Euclidean space and, and the different forms that are out in space, you know, I thought of that motif because it's split perfectly in the middle and... And it kind of could be flipped upside down and be read the same way. So it kind of plays with this notion of like where you are when you're looking at this form. And a little bit like Joaquin Torres, like his map of South America flipped upside down, you know. And like this idea of like if we were to take the building and flip it upside down, you could still see the same. It wouldn't, it wouldn't alter it so dramatically that it was something radically different. 
And so those are kind of the ideas behind that motif. And, and those lines kind of, they refer, they're supposed to evoke the idea of lightning or, you know, something shooting through the sky and give the, the form that, that sense of motion that's going on. Because that's, at the end of the day, a lot of these forms are alluding to motion and alluding to scale and things moving backwards and forwards and moving behind one another or through one another. You know, we've talked about the diagonal lines and we're talking about these lightning recalling forms. And we talked about how you started using circles in the work and where that came from. But we have not talked about why you keep using circles in the work. If they have for you a semiotic meaning or if they have a philosophical source that you find value in returning to? I think that they, in some ways, kind of, they're signifiers of potentially points of view, perspectives. I think this kind of phenomenon, like when you see the moon, if you see the, the if you ever see like a, a blood moon, you know, where you actually get the, the dark side of the moon, you actually see it, or it's kind of lit, lit up with a little bit of shadow, I think, of the earth, all of a sudden, it gives you a sense of where you are. All of a sudden, it gives you this like overwhelming kind of, a, I get a physical reaction from seeing it, almost like a study in scale of like, all of a sudden, I am very much a, a, at a different scale than what I thought I was when I was just looking at this sliver of And so I think like these circles, in a lot of ways, they're almost like this very like perfect stand-in for things that we can project into them, you know, and the fact that they can also kind of illustrate the movement of the form in the painting. They can illustrate, they can kind of dictate your sense of the space within the painting. I think that that's like probably the closest thing to like how I view them. I have like memories in some weird way of like at the time that I started to make the infinite regress work, watching like a full moon on a full moon night, making its way across the sky and encountering a gate in a garden that I was sitting in and just watching it kind of going through the lattice work of that gate and kind of illustrating different elements to the gate's design and holes through the gate. And to me, that's like the closest kind of physical experience that I've had that is almost synonymous with, with what I'm trying to recreate with the painting. We talked about your use of gold earlier. In the new paintings that are on view at the Anderson at Stanford, you bring in a dark, deep, light-sucking, inky black. Really the opposite of the gold. I mean, not that gold has an opposite, but, but pictorially it's pretty close to opposite. Where did that black come from? The pieces that are in the exhibition that are based in the gold paint are kind of in relation to these objects that are in the middle of that room, which are a Conque Panamanian pre-Columbian necklace a gold Spanish escudo from Peru and the gold spike, which uh, Leland Stanford used to knock into the transcontinental railway. They're in Promontory, Utah. Yeah, yeah Promontory, Utah. Which at this point is almost a kitsch object, but yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, totally. It absolutely is. It looks like it should be on like, yeah, you're, as a paperweight. But, but let me, there's one more object in the middle of the floor and it's Martin Purrier's 1990 dumb luck. So in that gold room, you know, this relationship set up between these objects, these historical objects and the paintings. What it did is it made me kind of think more about the history of gold and the history of the material. And so when I thought about the collection at the Anderson, I was really interested in, you know, I, always, I bring up music a bit um, because it's such a big influence in my, in my life and my work. There was this uh, lyric from De La Soul, a song called Buddy back in the 80s. And there it, this one line in their song kept refraining and it was black medallion, no gold. And it was in relation to like kind of anti-bling culture you know kind of like i don't need fancy things i don't need i can just have this like black leather medallion and that that's enough you know and that represents my my culture and pride and so i i thought about that quote a lot and i thought the the gold in these the, in these infinite regress works is so powerful and people are so drawn to it and I wanted to kind of think of this opportunity to kind of take pieces from the Anderson collection that are primarily black and center the color black in the same way. And think about that lyric because that's kind of what they're doing too in that lyric is like, you know, in a, a community that, you know, centering something different, centering something that isn't the the cliche of, of opulence and taking it and placing black in place of the gold. And so that's kind of the, the conceptual kind of like framework or I guess genesis of, of the Black Medallion series. And one of the things too was, I was like, where are the black artists in this collection? There's one, Martin Purrier. And where are, there's no Latinos. So it was kind of, the initial impetus was to, to kind of create uh, and Martin Purrier is to me like hands down like one of the best artists like in the world, and so it was an incredible opportunity to be like I've always wanted to have an, a, a conversation between my work and his work. I also love Louise Nevelson, and and the Pollock piece uh, that we chose is very interesting because it's a figurative piece of his, and it's you know kind of he was exposed to the great mexican muralists when he, when he created that piece that figurative piece yeah and so there was just all these interesting kind of relationships being set up so that was kind of the impetus between uh, behind uh, introducing the black into the work and that black is very much like super matte you know so it, it really is almost just like a complete infinity I want to wrap up by talking about your mural practice. You've had opportunities, not only at the Hammer, to do the large-scale work there, which of course was indoors, but you've done a big multi-part mural in mosaic for the New York subway, and you are making, or have made, a large-scale mural for the forthcoming Wilshire and La Brea station of the Los Angeles subway's Purple Line. For people who don't know L.A.'s geography, that is the station at the, at the southern end of Koreatown, probably almost certainly one stop east of LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Simple question, why are murals interesting to you? I think partly the scale, 
has been, you know, something that since working on the hammer project really kind of kicked it into high gear. But I am interested in the legacies of, of public works, especially in Latin America, and this notion of kind of a shared public language. And, you know, there's a lot to go through in that. I think I wouldn't really consider myself a muralist. So that would be like my, the first thing I would point out. I, I have come to mural making as an extension of my practice. But yeah, I, I, I think when I think about the public works, I think about notions of what it means to create a visual language that is transcending a lot of identities of communities and and how does it function for somebody in their everyday? So to me, those are the things that really inspire me to to pursue it. And a lot of the artists from you know mid-century Mexico, Juan O'Gorman, Siqueiros, and and then Burl Marx in Brazil. And there's just a lot of cool overlap to me. Like I I kind of like a little bit of the breaking down of the hierarchy of like the artist has genius in their studio that shouldn't be bothered, doesn't really pertain to any. And, you know, it's like the artist as a citizen, I guess, would be the short answer. Like I'm interested in those ideas of the artist as a citizen. Interesting. You mentioned Juan O'Gorman. So so to view a Juan O'Gorman work, you've got to hold still real still because there's a lot going on up there. As I understand it, your mural for the L.A. Metro is designed to be seen from a moving car. Yeah, because that whole corridor is being reinvented in this way that is, um, you know, we're we're standing at this point in L.A.'s history where, you know, that utopian vision of freeways and the car was everything is really coming to an end. Failed. Yeah, it's very it failed. deeply, deeply failed. So it's important that we we think about how people are actually going to be experiencing their their lives in this this built environment. And so, yeah, in terms of the passing car, I, I was thinking a lot about, like, when I lived in New York, it was really fun to feel as if you could almost just teleport yourself all over the city or to other cities even just by getting going down into the subway. And so, so yeah, the, the design is very much inspired by also the deco work that's around the uh, Wilshire Corridor. So that a lot of the forms in it are, are definitely speaking to kind of this warp speed feel. Eamon Oray here on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.